Hello friends, welcome back to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And this project is for you and I together to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It's great to have you with me here today. And we're going to continue in our season six of working together through the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at the first 13 chapters today and seeing, well, it's the rejection of Jesus Christ when he returns to his hometown and see what it can teach us too about dealing with rejection. So if you are here for the first time, why not click on the subscribe button and make the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life from here on in. You're welcome to follow along from where we pick up today or to go back to the beginning of a season or the very first season indeed and work along at whatever pace suits you. New episodes are posted every Monday to Friday, most weeks. And if you are here for the first time, do stick around at the end where I'll tell you lots of ways you can connect to this ministry and receive additional free Bible teaching resources. So with that said, it's bye for now, and I'll see you at the end. Okay, today's episode I've called Dealing with Rejection, and it looks at the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 6. I wonder if you've ever heard the story of the Ugly Duckling. It's a famous sort of fairy tale fable by Hans Christian Andersen, one of this little guy, this little duckling born, who experiences months of rejection and hardship and teasing, and he actually in the story goes off to live by himself. But the conclusion of the original 1844 story has this happy ending when we hear our main character say, I never dreamed of such happiness as this, for whilst I was an ugly duckling, I was in fact a beautiful swan. You know, the big fact that we need to grasp hold of today is that in this age and these days, the vast majority of people reject Christianity. Certainly, that's the case in Western Europe. They reject not only Christianity, but the message of Christ himself. But in my estimation, we should not be fazed by this, because in fact, for 2,000 years of Christian history, including those initial years when Jesus himself walked upon this earth, in fact, the majority of people rejected his message. The community of God's people has survived for over 2,000 years across every type of culture and civilization, but often existed marginal to the mainstream cultural backdrop. What I would like to do today is ask the question, how should we handle rejection when we face it? What I have primarily in mind, of course, is how we should handle the rejection of the Christian message and the truth about Jesus and who he claimed himself to be. But please note some of the things that we'll read about today, and I'll say today, I also think apply to any personal rejection that you might experience. Now, the passage today falls into two straightforward parts. First of all, it shows us how Jesus himself was rejected when he returns to his hometown. And then secondly, it shows us Jesus sending out his apostles two by two and giving them some instructions on how they should deal with rejection when they face it. So these two passages on the surface appear to be two different things, but I believe they're actually linked by the single theme of rejection. So let me begin with the first part of the passage we're looking at today, which deals straightforwardly with the issue of Jesus being rejected when he returns to his hometown. And it tells us this, beginning at verse 1. 
Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed, saying, Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that he's been given? And what are these remarkable miracles he has been performing? So note, this is the second visit of Jesus to his hometown of Nazareth. And the Bible experts tell me that this visit occurs about a year after the first. And we see on this occasion, he actually enters his local synagogue. Now, Mark's account doesn't tell us much more about this on this occasion. But interestingly, if we look across for a moment to Luke's account of the same events, well, let me read to you so I can show you and tell you what Jesus actually said to them on that day in the synagogue that created this reaction. So again, it says he went to Nazareth where he was brought up. So it's telling us that it's hometown. It's Luke 4, 16 to 21, by the way, I'm reading. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up and read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, which was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to see the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And then he began saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow, do you see what he did there? And do you see how the people reacted to him? Well, let's go back to our to Mark's account and remind ourselves of what they said. It tells us they said that they were amazed, saying, where did this guy get these things? And what's this wisdom that he's been given? And what about these remarkable signs he's been performing? So the people question Jesus. They question the claim that he's just made, questioning what he said, what he did, and how he did the miracles he did. And in fact, they go on to say this. Isn't this just the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't these his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. In other words, they're saying, we know this guy. He grew up around here. He's just that carpenter, Jesus. They probably said something like, this was the guy who made a table for my father years ago. We know his family. They name his mother and his brothers and sisters. And they ask, this is just this guy we know. Where did he get all this wisdom from? I wonder as an aside, did you know that after Jesus was born, Joseph's and Mary had other children, both boys and girls. It's mentioned here and in other passages. And by the way, this person James mentioned here is the same James who will later write the book of James and he's the guy who went on to head up the Jerusalem church after Jesus' death and resurrection. So what we have here is a picture of a small, insular, sort of regional community town and Jesus is returning home again and he's the former carpenter, a guy from a modest family, not someone you would think of as a likely candidate for a prophet never mind the Messiah. The Messiah, remember, was the one they were waiting for and they expected to purge the nation of foreigners, to liberate, to free Israel from under the yoke of the Roman oppressors and establish a new kingdom on earth. And what they see in Jesus is just their local boy all grown up. But there is still a conflict raging within them because on the one hand they say, well, it's just 
Jesus. We know this guy, it's Jesus. But at the same time, they ask, where's this wisdom he's spoken come from? And these, what are these amazing things he's doing it? So they recognize that he has uh, a sort of heavenly wisdom, shall we say. But on the other hand, they're troubled by the fact that they just recognize him as their once local carpenter. What's that old saying? Don't judge a book by its cover. That's certainly what's going on here. By the way, I come from a place called Northern Ireland and I heard this story. I haven't actually been able to identify it, but I certainly grew up hearing it. I hope it's true. I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Seamus Heaney was a very well-known Irish poet from the same part of Ireland that I come from. And his father, well, his father was just a peat farmer. He made a little extra money on the side by selling the odd cow now and again. But basically, he was a simple man and a peat farmer who had expected Seamus to follow in the same route. Seamus Heaney would in fact grow up to be lauded as one of the greatest poets in the English language and in fact won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Very early in his career, when he had his first book of poems published, the publisher, as was their pattern with new writers to encourage them, presented them with a special leather-bound edition of their book. He was said to have shown the book to his father, who said, Wow, that's really nice. Where did you learn to bind books? Maybe his dad should have looked inside and seen his son's name printed on the title page. It's the same sort of thing that's going on here. These people are looking at the outside and they're not caring to pay attention to what is being said and what's really going on in the inside and who Jesus is saying he really is. And people still do that today. People, when confronted with the living Lord Jesus and his claim of divinity, well, they respond exactly in the same way today. And let's look at how they responded to him on that day. Mark, in fact, tells us in verse 4, In response to what they said, Jesus said, A prophet is honoured everywhere except in his hometown among his relatives and his own family. So they think they're judging him, but he is, in fact, judging them. There was a time a few many years ago when Paula and I visited a well-known art gallery in the city of Birmingham in the Midlands of England. We went to actually see a very famous what was called pre-Raphaelite art collection. Uh, they have a collection of paintings there that they're famous for. But whilst there, I heard this young boy who was pretty much being dragged round by his mother to look at the pictures say to his mother, the pictures in this art gallery are all rubbish. I remember thinking, you know what, it's not the pictures that are ever on trial here. They've stood the test of time. It's the visitors and their reaction to them that is the real test. And that's what's going on here. It's not Jesus who's ever on trial in these stories, but the people and their reaction to him is what is really going on here and what is really being taught about here. Anyway, the text continues. It says he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few people who were ill and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. And then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Now we know and believe that Jesus as the Son of God, well he must have the power and he can do anything he wants. But because they did not recognise who he was, they did not have faith Therefore, it means there was no appetite for him to do amazing works, the things that he could have done for them. And when he did do them, they didn't credit him or recognize them as such anyway. Even if he'd done everything they asked and done loads of loads of miracles, the reality is that people probably would still not have recognized them 
as the work of God. God cannot answer prayers if you don't ask for them in the first place. And sometimes when he does answer prayers, he's even not credited with them anyway. As an example, a few years ago, a lady, not a Christian believer, but someone who uh, my business relationship brings me into contact with on occasion in the past, her husband was terribly, terribly ill following quite a minor surgery that went catastrophically wrong and he ended up spending many, many days in a coma and she was told to prepare for the worst. She came to me knowing I was a Christian believer and asked would I pray for her and would the church that I was involved in at that time pray for her. And I said of course we would. Well that chap pretty much made her a miraculous recovery. He didn't die. In fact he got out of hospital and after a long rehabilitation he did very well. In fact I saw him just recently about 15 years after those events, and he was running in a local 5k race. But anyway, the point I'm making is, a few months after he had come round from his coma and had just got home, I said to her, well, it appears that God really answered your prayers at that time. And her response was, well, you know, when you're desperate, you'll try anything. Now, of course, I don't know whether God healed that person or not. I personally suspect he did. But what I do know is that she never had an appetite to acknowledge him, even if he did it. Simply put, Jesus was rejected and his work was not wanted or credited at that time. So even Jesus, then as today, experiences rejection. So even then as today, we see the truth of Jesus rejected. And as it says in the closing part of the first part of this passage, we're just simply told he leaves Nazareth and instead goes around and teaches in the smaller villages in the region. But then it goes on to the next stage, picking up in verse 7, and says, Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. Now, as a matter of fact, the word sent out or send out here is a word the word from which we get the term apostle. You see, the word apostle simply means someone who is sent. Someone who is sent, commissioned, if you like, on a sort of official mission. But this person, you've got to realise the term means they're not just a postman, they're someone who is sent with authority to deliver an authentic message personally. In other words, a, a reasonable translation of it might be they're sent as an ambassador. And it's here we see him do that when he sends out his 12 disciples. Which is why from this point forward, they are sometimes referred to that in the text as apostles, as in indeed collectively the 12 apostles. And these are the instructions he gave them. I'm reading from the text again. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not even an extra shirt. And whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that time. So it's important to note he sends them out two by two so they can support and encourage one another. But he also tells them to take no food and no money, not even to take extra clothes. All they are to take is their staff and their sandals. Now they're off on a journey here and you probably thought your local airline's baggage policy was strict. Well, there's definitely a no extra baggage allowed here when it comes to being commissioned by Jesus. He tells them to go and to travel light, but he tells them to do that in order that they can then 
depend upon the villages and the towns themselves for support. Because what he's drawing attention to the fact is that they will be supported. They will support you if they value what you're doing. And if you don't value your message, then you should move on. When Matthew tells a story, he adds the additional important observation that the worker is worthy of his wage. In all of this, Jesus is clearly teaching that you should depend on the Lord. And the Lord works through people to build up his church, to build up the ministries of his church, and to supply the needs of the worker. And then he says this in the next verse. And if any place you find you're not welcome, or they will not listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So it's quite noticeable that right from the start, Jesus is saying you need to be aware people are going to reject you. They're not going to receive what you hear. That's going to be your experience. They may not even welcome you, but the really important thing to notice is that they're choosing not to listen to you. And what he says on those occasions, and I think this is interesting, he says simply leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as you go. What I find interesting about this at that time, if Jewish people travelled outside the region of Palestine when they crossed the border into a Gentile territory, they believed that they were defiled while travelling through that territory. But when they crossed over the border and back into the Palestine region, into what would later be the nation of Israel, they would shake the dust from their clothes and their feet to signify the removing of those critical, unbelieving, worldly influences. And what I believe this is telling us is that when the message that we carry is consistently rejected within a certain context, then we should reach a point where we must symbolically, in a sense, just dust our feet and move on. And then verse tells us that they go out and do what they're commissioned to do when it says they went out and preached that people should repent. So they simply go out and they talk about Jesus and they preach the story of repentance. In other words, they tell people to change their mind about who Jesus is, to change their mind about what sin is, and to change their mind about what the proper response to sin is. And by doing that, they too can live a new transformed life, living under the power and with the power of God. Okay, let me summarize all this for us and try and draw an application out of it. This first part of the passage simply told us that Jesus was rejected and the second part of the opening part of the passage told us that we will be rejected too. And it tells us that the disciples of Jesus, he's telling them that they're going to be rejected precisely because of the message that they're preaching. It's going to happen to them right at the beginning in their day and the same is likely to happen to us also. But Jesus reminds us, speaking elsewhere, saying, remember, if they persecuted me, they're also going to persecute you. So I'd like to finish today by making a couple of practical suggestions about facing up to the consequences of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be one of these sent people, ambassadors of Christ. And firstly, that it is you need to know, that's what he's telling us here, that you will experience rejection. But you shouldn't be discouraged by that. As a matter of fact, if you haven't experienced rejection for being a Christian, then it's probably because if you've been a Christian for a very long time, you no longer have any non-Christian fans, or simply that you're not telling people about who Jesus is or what he's done in your life. 
And that's really not the way we're meant to be living as Christians. Because if you're doing these things, then the reality is you will experience rejection, uh, but you need to keep that rejection in perspective. Because what you experience today is nothing experienced to the rejection that people have experienced down through the centuries, through church history, or even, I suspect, in some other places around the world. Most of the people who listen to this podcast are based in Europe and North America, but it isn't the same experience for Christians around the world everywhere. You know what? I heard of a young Christian missionary student friend of mine who recently spent some time serving in Malaysia, and during that time he went to work with a local church in a rural area on their summer outreach program among young people and teenagers. His very first Sunday at the church was in fact a baptismal service and one of the many young people attending that day was a 17-year-old girl who was among some others who was being baptised. But during the service he noticed that she brought with her a small worn suitcase and she leaned it against the back wall of the church at the beginning of the service. He asked the pastor what was going on there and the pastor said the young girl was here today because she was being baptised but she had been told by her father that morning that if she went ahead with this and was baptised as a Christian she must leave the house and never come home again. So she had brought her luggage, her small case of her worldly belongings, she brought it with her to the baptism service. As an aside, if any of you listening here this morning are delaying any decision, whether it's to be baptised or even just to serve in the Lord or to go into a situation where you need to identify yourself as a Christian believer, if you're delaying doing that or you're frightened of doing that in any way, partly due to fear of what friends or family might think, I would suggest you think again. Uh, you know, I once had someone tell me that they didn't want to get baptised because they didn't want to get their hair wet in public. Anyway, that's an aside. The point and point I'm making here is people around the world have and are dying for their faith in Christ to this day. I don't believe there are many good reasons for those of us who have the good fortune to live in the West, in Western democracies, for in any way being disobedient for the call God is making on our life, because I don't believe we face that type of, of persecution and rejection to that level in this day. The second thing I'd like to say, that if and when rejection happens, what this passage tells us is, me is the fact that you should rejoice. Now, your probably initial reaction to that is, what, rejoice? Are you kidding me? I'm being rejected. Why should I rejoice? Well, I have to say, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying, rejoice. As a matter of fact, in this famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explicitly said that. He said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for your reward is in heaven. Rejoice, friends. For the great reward of being facing persecution in this life is a greater reward in heaven. Another way to look at this situation when you feel this experience this sort of prejudice or rejection, you should, in a sense, not take it personally. Credit Jesus for it because it's actually a rejection and it's something that is against him. It's not really against you. If you weren't an ambassador for Christ in the first place, no one would even be bothered about you. So don't take it personally. What's really going on, the real judgment here, is about their rejection of God. It's not about you. 
And let me make a third and final suggestion. It's what Jesus himself simply said. He's reminding us of the fact he said in John 15 verse 20, If they persecute me, then they will persecute you also. So if you're persecuted, then be encouraged. Because this simply means you're being authentic to the gospel and you're authentically representing Jesus. And it also means that by the persecution and the prejudice, you're being changed, refined into becoming more like Christ. You're experiencing something akin to what he experienced. And that, in a sense, is the whole purpose of the Christian life. Paul said these things happen for a reason, and he said that these things happen so that we may know him and the power of his resurrection and have fellowship in his suffering. That's Philippians 3.10, by the way. You see, when we are rejected, we get a little glimpse of what it is like to be like Jesus. When you're rejected for his sake, then don't take it personally, and definitely don't listen to those rejecting you, and don't let them affect your mood or drag you down. Simply remember that this is evidence, proof, that you are a child of God, a follower of Christ, and a possessor of the Holy Spirit. Remember who you are in Christ when you face these things, and in the light of that you can really say, you know it doesn't really matter what other people say about me. In that situation, you don't have to listen to what they say. Instead, you just need to remember who you are and who you are in Christ and what he said. Let me close by returning to that Hans Christian Andersen tale. In later life, he was asked by a journalist if he'd ever consider writing his autobiography. And he replied, it's already been written. I called it the ugly duckling. Hans Christian Andersen was a devout Christian believer. Now, in reviewing his life in his biography, a biography written by a well-known British journalist called Anne Chisholm, she wrote this about him. Anderson was a tall, ugly boy with a big nose and big feet. And when he grew up, he hid his amazing singing voice and his passion for theatre because he was cruelly teased and mocked by other children. The story of the ugly duckling is the story of the child of a swan whose egg accidentally rolls into a duck's nest. Speculation now suggests that Anderson was in fact an early illegitimate son of King Christian VIII of Denmark, and he found this out later in life, and it was that that inspired him to write the story as a metaphor, not just for his own life, but for the life of Christ in him and his Christian faith. And the fact that this story was inspired by the late discovery of A, his royal lineage, and the fact that he had a dual lineage in Christ as being a child of God, he wanted to tell a story that reflected that of his position both in Christ and in the world. In fact, the last line of his fairy tale says this, It does not matter if you are born and destined to live in a duckyard as long as you've been hatched from a swan's egg. Let me suggest, friends, when you're rejected, when that happens to you, choose not to live your life as an ugly duckling. Just remember that you've been born again. You've been adopted into the royal lineage of the Son of God and the King of the whole universe.
Okay, there we are. That's it for today. Lovely passage, isn't it? Really helpful and encouraging, particularly if you're going through hard times or feel people are rejecting or even persecuting you. I hope you're encouraged by it. I always am every time I read it. Can I remind you that you've been listening to the Bible Project Daily Podcast and you can subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you happen to receive your podcasts from. But the place that's hosted is the bibleproject.buzzsprout.com and that's the place where you'll always find active links to lots of different places. Primarily, it's the place where you can get a episode notes page related to what we've talked about today as well as a full transcript of the podcast if you're interested in that and you're free to use those resources in whatever way you want in your own personal ministry or even in public ministry or even in other ways you don't need to credit me to use them take them and use them as you see fit but you'll also find places there where you can connect and support this ministry Places like the Patreon page where a few people make a small commitment monthly to enable this teaching, the main teaching, to appear free on all the main podcast platforms. And as a little thank you to them, I post extra bonus episodes there. Things, some of the the more unusual things that I'm doing in giving talks, presentations, preparations to speak and take part in philosophical study groups and psychology support groups. Uh, also think stuff related to art and literature just things that interest me i just put them out there they're not part of the main ministry which is always the bible project podcast but they just give an insight into other aspects of my life and ministry and i just put post them on there as a, as a little thank you but you'll also find places like the youtube channel and the socials lots of ways in which you can connect to this ministry and i hope really feel part of it So I do trust you've enjoyed today and I do hope I'll see you back here again tomorrow and that you've made the decision to make the study of the Word of God, not just the reading of it, the study of the Word of God, part of the rhythm of your daily life. It's what I have decided to do over two and a half years now into a 10-year project and Lord willing, I hope together we'll cover the whole Bible and we're going to get together, discover some things that we've never understood or never really even had the time to go into and look at before. I'm really looking forward to it. So with that said, I'll say bye-bye for now and I do trust I'll see you back here again tomorrow. Well, it'll be tomorrow for me. Remember, you do this at whatever pace suits you. But we'll be back here again tomorrow and every day on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.